There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling fortunate. And I've been thinking a lot about good fortune and also chance. And today's guest's work has made me reminisce about chance in my own life where, you know, I think a lot of us study, especially for artists, actually, they they study in quite a rigorous, intense academic way for many, 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 many years. It's actually a bit like if you're a doctor or something. I think people spend like I don't know, seven years or or an architect or all these different professions where you have to really dedicate a long, long, long period of time to the end goal, which is becoming an artist, you know, as a professional thing, or maybe even just as a hobby, but it's still something that a lot of people dedicate their time to. And I was thinking about this, this, this meeting between the kind of academic rigor versus chance and what some people would say good fortune or even luck perhaps and even ourselves like with talk art it was kind of an accident like we've had a lot of good luck along the way but at the same time it was born out of both of our passion and dedication to learning and teaching ourselves about art history in all different ways and also collecting art and stuff like that um and I love today's guest work and I'm really happy because I saw their show at the Parasol Union in 2015 which was um, an overview of 10 years of their painting which at the time was was such an impressive body of work but now almost 10 years later I mean it's probably eight years later but um, it's really interesting to sort of catch up with them and see what what's happened you know through the pandemic um, they've moved out of London and moved to Hertfordshire and I'm really fascinated to talk about the meeting points between figurative painting and abstract painting and this idea of kind of landscape perhaps but then an abstract version of it or you know like a a cityscape but an abstract sort of version of it because I feel like that is what makes today's guest work so um, singular and exciting is these meeting points between things that we all understand so well but I feel like something very new is being created through their body of work and um, Russell Tovey you are like a massive massive fan of today's guest and I'm grateful to you for championing them actually because you've really brought their work into focus for me in a way that um you know kind of reintroduced me to their work when I was already aware of it but I sort of hadn't thought about it as much recently and and I love her work so much so we would like to welcome to talk art the one and only Katie Katie Moran. Moran hi Katie hello I was looking forward to that bit. No one's ever said my name in unison before. <laughs> I can go now. Thank you. That was it's like a very amateur <laughs> church choir. It's a bit like if you get your name on, on X Factor when they introduce yeah. you, like, Cher the, Lloyd. It's yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. The, but the religion is art in this room. Exactly. Where do we find you today, Katie? Um, I'm at Modern Art in Helmet Row. Yeah. Oh, you're in London? Room upstairs. Yes, I am. Yeah. Have yeah. you travelled into London for things, art things going on at the moment, or are you in just specifically for talk art? I've travelled in because I don't have a laptop, Russell. So <laughs> don't you? <laughs> I needed to borrow modern art. Um, no, I don't have one. No, and I'm not. I'm not okay with them. So that's interesting. Yes, so I thought it so would be handy that. to come here. <laughs> but you, you, we, we communicated through direct messaging on Instagram. So you have. Yes. You have social media and you're, you're, but you just don't have a laptop. 
I do have social media. I don't go on it very much at the minute. I've stopped scrolling on Instagram, which I'm quite pleased about. I just check it now for messages and things. Well done. <laughs> yeah, it feels quite crucial to me, actually, that I do that. And kind of building antidotes into my daily routine to combat the kind of um, mind-scattering effects of modern technology. Yes. In recent times, you've moved to Hertfordshire. And I know before that you yeah. were in London as well. But but has that had a big impact on the way that your work is progressing, like living in the countryside? Yeah, I think... Um, I've always enjoyed solitude and I definitely feel I get the solitude that I need and uh, life has slowed down. The pace of life is slower there. I definitely feel the difference now when I drive into London. I mean, I love London. I love the intensity and the speed and, and the vibrancy, but it is quite an overwhelm on the senses and I'm quite pleased to get out at the same time. I've also got a much bigger studio than I used to have. And I walk there now and I walk through Woodland to the studio, which is really nice. And my kids go off one way to school and I go off the other. And we all walk and we're home for like 3.15. So the quality of life is very nice. Uh, but I'm still close to London. So I can come in, see exhibitions, do, you know, run all my errands, do all my London stuff. So it's nice to have both. I don't think I could have one or the other. Yeah. Is it important to you to have a studio that's separate from the home? Like somewhere that you can, like you say, like you can make a walk there and a journey to sort of prepare your mind ready to tackle the painting? Yeah, that is a really good question because I know for some artists that's very important, the journey. I did work at home when I first moved to Hertfordshire. I had a studio in the garden and I loved the immediacy of that, you know, being able to go in and check and look at things again. I do take my paintings home with me a lot. So, I, you know, I transport them between home and the studio and look at them in the living room. That's always useful because the living room is a lot smaller than the studio. The studio has a big ceiling, very high, uh, very big. So, yeah, it's nice. Just recently, I wake up, I wake up very early at like 4.30 or 5 and I have my little routine of doing things. Um, I just started playing the piano and I play the piano, do my meditation, do my reading. And I was thinking, yeah, if I was working at home now, I could pop into the studio, you know, and get some work done before the kids wake up. So I don't know is the answer. I do enjoy the journey. I like the walk. I love the fact that you take yeah. the paintings back home with you to your living room. So you'd see them in a domestic environment. So they go from the studio and before they leave you, you live with them, I guess. Do you have like a, a certain hook, a certain area or wall that they hang on? A certain wall? Um, always in, yeah, always in the living room. Well, I say always in the living room. I've started moving things around. Like I just painted my entrance hall and that is very small. And I was experimenting with hanging different things in this space. And it, it, the reason I moved to this very big studio was because I got quite preoccupied with... Um, Levels of experience. I would go and see exhibitions, like I saw the Lee Krasner exhibition at Barbican. And, um, you know, when you would sort of walk around the balcony and you'd see a painting maybe from 100 metres away, or maybe it's like 50 metres away, and you, you get hit with that level of experience. And then you get the midpoint level experience. And then you get the very close-up level of experience. I was very interested in that. And modern art... Um, I moved to Viner Street and had a big space and I had a show there. So I was thinking about the impact of things from distance, which is one of the reasons I moved to this big studio. But it's really funny because then, of course, Modern Art moved to the Mayfair space, which is small again. So, you know, that kept me on my toes <laughs> <laughs> thinking about this distance. But yeah, so I think it's useful for me to move them from the studio to the house to see them at different distances but also because I never plan what I'm going to make I find it useful to put them next to the sofa or something recognizable in a domestic setting because sometimes I feel they help me to recognize it more quickly I do it in the studio as well put them next to a chair or a plant so you always picture them in in the domestic 
in some ways before you release them you know because if a gallery exhibitions they might be going into a white cube environment before they go to a collection but you yourself see them already like placed within a domestic environment no i think that is tricky and i think you have to be careful of that because i've done a lot of decorating of my home recently and i have been thinking about making paintings of certain colors to go in certain rooms and i think you have to be very mindful of not confusing that with making art and i was thinking this just yesterday the art comes first and then you build in the domestic around it to complement i don't feel it should be the other way around yeah i definitely think you have to be careful of that and would the paintings go back to the studio would you then bring so you bring them from the studio to your house and you look at them and you go "Uh, uh-uh, that needs more work or that needs something else to it and then you would take them back to the studio yeah often i do that back and forth And it is a bit like trickery. When I take them from the studio and put them in the car, they suddenly look massive. And then in the studio, they look small. And yeah, it's quite (laughs) funny. (laughs) It's interesting to me, this idea of like even, uh, you know, placing a painting in proximity to a chair, say, and just the relation between, it's not even necessarily for, for me, what I think you were saying is to do with domestic. It's more to do with like space or, or objects in relation to perhaps. Other objects. Yeah. I think there's definitely that element, but I think it's more about trying to speed up the process for me of of recognising them. Because it's very funny when you don't know what you're going to make and you want the element of surprise to come in, you end up with something and obviously you can see it, but you can't tell. You can't tell if it's working or not. I think it's an effort to speed up that process, if you know what I mean. It's like once I had a painting, I finished it just before the show in New York. Uh, so I took it with me, but I couldn't quite tell if it was finished or not. And someone wanted to buy it, but I just said, oh, no, I can't, I can't tell if it's finished. So the gallery shipped it all the way back to London and I opened it in the studio. And the min- minute I opened it, I was like, oh, yeah, it is finished. <laughs> but it's come all the way. Wow. I had a little pang of guilt that, you know, it'd come all the way back. But I couldn't have sped that process up. You know, yeah. it, it takes as long as it takes. So, but yeah, things inform things, don't they? So whatever you put next to something then informs. You know, it's like when I'm making the paintings, I, I feel like they're a continuum in a, way, in a way. And they're all, you know, like words in a sentence or they're all informing each other. And sometimes I find it quite hard to isolate or, you know, cherry pick which ones are the strongest on their own because it's uh, all done in the same breath, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're an artist who has been collected by, um, you know, collectors, institutions, um, had your work on display in uh, galleries for many, many, many years now. And I read somewhere that in your deepest kind of heart you would have preferred it if you could have just kept all the paintings somewhere and then you could almost go back to a warehouse and just check in on the, all of them to see how they're feeling that day in relation to what you're making I love that idea of like it wouldn't it be great if you could have just like kept all the work somehow it's something I suppose I don't dwell on because you know it's the deal isn't it and it's and I'm very grateful to sell them, and yeah, then that affords me the the money and time to make more. But no, totally. I mean, that would be the ideal, wouldn't it? Just have them all to be able to walk around every night, refer to them, or would it? Maybe it wouldn't because maybe it would draw you back too much. You know, maybe it's good that because I I do think I forget what I've done, and sometimes I do need to remind myself what I've done because I. I've always wanted a, a plurality in, in the work and, and room to manoeuvre and, and um, I feel I'm always on to the next thing. So it is good sometimes to look back and remind myself of my interests and maybe revisit them. Um, and recurrent themes tend to come back through anyway. But yeah, it's funny when you see, when I come across older works and and they're me, but they're so very different. It's like when you look back at a photo of yourself, you know, 10 years ago, it's a moment in time, isn't it? We're always in flux, we're always changing. So, and I could never replicate that, you know, that was then. I think the thing that I've always loved and always been drawn to is this, um, the found painting 
uh, like the thrift shop mm. find, uh, the gold that you pick up in a charity shop that then you take home and then you rework over these paintings, which give it a kind of high-low effect. These are, these are uh, ready-made frames. These are ready-made prints, like low art that anybody can have access to. And then you, they come into your orbit and then they have this high art that is esteemed onto those, but yet you still acknowledge and respect the object that you're working on. When did that theme happen and how do you stockpile all of these frames? Because they all kind of follow the same dimensions as well. They all have this kind of unique sort of sizing that is particular to you. When did it start? I think I've always sort of included the found object. But I think, yeah, in the early days, I used to paint from images from my phone, which were probably actually images of paintings like the ones I now pick up. So it's kind of the same thing. Rather than paint from the reference on my phone, I now have the actual thing and work over it. Yeah, you said, how do I get them as well, didn't you? Yeah, there's, um, there's a salvage shop on Goldbourne Road, and I know the guys there now. They're really nice, and they amass them for me, and they save them. So I go in when they've got a batch for me. <laughs> and uh, so that's good. And they know what scale I like. And also, it's dependent on what I can fit in my car. There was something nice, but it was big the other day, and I couldn't fit it in the car. So it's like, well, no, I can't have that then. Probably <laughs> too big for me. <laughs> Probably too big for me anyway, because um, there is a certain scale, I think, where the illusion I'm trying to create works best. What was the other thing? There was about three questions in that question. There was, there was like, that's, that's Tovi, Tovi special for you there. Um, <laughs> I was asking about, <laughs> so when did up. you first find a found painting frame and decided yourself, you're going to paint over that, that's something that you're going to claim? Mm, that is a good question, but I can't, I think what you were asking me was how I decide and it's very intuitive and it's not intellectually conceived in any way. It's just a felt thing, a kind of... Um, internal gauge you know either I respond to it or I don't I don't think through it much more than that and then I just grab it <laughs> and then when you start yeah. working on it is it quite a daunting process to be faced with this I'm you know I'm picturing like the hay wane or something that you've got this print on it because there's always like an original work of art whether that is a screen print or whether that is someone's you know mm. own sketching or painting on it and then you have these wooden frames or these plastic frames at times sometimes but they have this history to them so when you're faced with that do you is it a daunting process to then at attack it or is it quite a just you you grab one you put it up and then you're off it's funny when you say they have a history some of them really smelt like some have come from house clearances <laughs> they really yeah. have a strong smell but then I think about the energy because I'm a believer in energy as well and you think where do they live you know what energy uh, has been imbued into them by the environment that they've been in or the artists who painted them prior to me, you know, and is that going to affect the result of this painting? It's daunting sometimes because I love them. So like I picked one up recently and it's so lovely. It's not enough, but it's got lovely things about it. I want to make sure I do it justice and make a good painting out of it. And I sort of have to be careful that I don't get too carried away. Um, so sometimes I'll work quite slowly in the bits I paint over, leaving theirs underneath. And then I'll make sure I work over my painted bits and I don't obscure any more of theirs. Like early on, it's definitely mine that need changing, not theirs, you know? So... Um, and then trying to allow the good bits to come through from their painting. And if you like kind of refreshing the energy of, of their painting with with what I add. It's almost a collaboration yeah. with an artist you've never met. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because when you talk about it like this and I think about it in a rational way or an intellectual way, you know, then yes, you would have all these kind of thoughts, but I don't really think about it in that way I think I've loved also the process that and you can see like your fingerprints where that you move the painting around so it's not like you work on it at one axis and you go this is where it is it's a landscape or it's a portrait these move fluidly with the push and pull of your 
paint the way you have this tension and your gestly strokes until you decide that you see an image and then you work into it. And this is something that I've really been fascinated by. And again, I guess this is you working in instinct that this process has developed that I can imagine you just twisting and turning, just trying to find something that speaks to you. I think it's more trying to get fresh eyes. Um, you know, like when you leave the studio and you come in the next day, that moment when I walk in the door is always really important for me because it's the fresh eyes and you see things with clarity. So when I'm turning them, it's giving me a fresh eyes moment. I'm able to see the paint marks with clarity and this sliding scale of abstract to representational or even if it's not figurative or representational, it's a, a moment of detail or tension or illusion in the painting. Then I turn it the other way and I can see if actually those marks are a little stale or sometimes the conscious mind sees a route to go and then tries to push that. Um, and the conscious mind is limited. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to open up all possibilities, the conscious mind, the subconscious, the unconscious, the intuitive voice. I'm trying to allow for all of these different things. And I'm, very aware and alert to the voices that are going on telling me to do this or to paint this or to push that but yeah that's the the turning element I would say and I paint with gloves cotton gloves and then vinyl gloves to protect my hands and so I think the paint doesn't dry as quickly if I if the paint was on my fingers it, it might be absorbed and dry quicker so that is why the marks end up on the frame but then, you know, sometimes I just feel they're integral then to the composition or sometimes not. And I like the, the, the frame as a device for that. You know, it can be in the painting or it can be outside the painting. I, I really love this, this idea as well, that, that these existing objects that have their own energies, they're almost like bodies, you know, filled with a history or, or with an energy force or something, how that then sparks you and your muse in a way to kind of you know take action and to have that response it seems like such a unique thing because you often hear of of people saying like oh I heard a song and then it made me want to you know draw something or or maybe they read literature and they wrote a song after it or you know what I mean like th th there's often something that might inspire your curiosity or your creativity but I'm loving this this kind it's very intense like you know and you seem to really respect that connection I mean, I definitely do. I'm, I'm not. I, I, I love these things, but so I don't know how interesting I find it because I, I think it's instinctive and, in a way, ineffable and unknowable. Why we're kind of drawn to these things, but you know, I mean, there's yeah. You know, you think about high art, low art, like Russell was saying, kitsch, taste, um, taking things out of context. You know, I've seen like great artist paintings taken out of context and. I don't know if you would know that by that artist or by an artist of that caliber. And, and it, you know, it throws up these questions, you know, my pathology, where I grew up, domestic again, you know, my parents' house, my grandparents' houses, my first kind of experience of curated spaces, you know, and the art that would hang on the walls, like all the things I've seen, the visual memory. I mean, how the, you know, how would you ever work out why? And that's why I don't know how interested I am in in that, as in, you know, really trying to get to the knob of what is this about? I don't know that it matters. I just trust the, the intuitive response. Or even if you tried to gauge it, who knows it would be right. But I've read that you always see the paintings as figurative. That's something that you've, you know, that's what you're trying to find in the work, even though they are abstract to an audience. I think there's definitely been phases where I would see them as more figurative and then I would try and push this, this narrative. But it would then become tricky because I'm sacrificing the paint and the freedom of the paint to close down this narrative so that the viewer will see this and understand this because it means something to me, but who's the viewer? <laughs> and would they even see what I see? And then at what cost to the 
freedom and energy of the pain. So I think there's definitely, um, I feel like this in the paintings I make, I sort of lump them into categories. They're kind of lazy categories, but I suppose paintings that are more from an abstract expressionist territory to paintings that are more from a surrealist territory. And then someone said some of the paintings felt like 1960s Italian paintings. And now I, I like holding that in my head. And I'm not even sure I know exactly what that means. But to me, I feel like there's an oddness about them. And then there's sort of like a 19... Definitely 1950s, 60s, but then like a 70s, 80s color fade thing going on. So the, but anyway, in the surrealist kind of territory, I feel there are more figurative things, things that recur, like surrealist eyes, uh, clowns' faces, playing cards, things from sort of still life. Like I hold um, uh, Henry Ploberger in my head, this kind of uh, surrealist still life painting that I saw one time in, in New York. So uh, whereas the abstract ones are not about that, but I suppose in the way that the figurative element, if you like, would be the, the detail, the sense of illusion, the tension uh, in the abstract painting. So, yeah, sounds, I guess that answers the question, doesn't mm. it? Well, they do. They feel timeless. And I don't know if yeah. that is because you have these, the frames in some ways are, ancient and modern and kitsch and contemporary or you know they come from a certain place and the the painting is is you can't you know you, you'd make a painting today but what's unique to you is that the, it does feel timeless in in the way that Howard Hodgkin sort of works and they feel you know obviously they are historic now but when they were contemporary they still felt they were historical as soon as they left and he likes the device of the, the frame and the found frame and the found object and working over that, that that is a unique energy that you are able to imbue in these works is that they feel like they've been around for a long time. That's very nice of you to say that they feel timeless. Thank you. But um, yeah, I definitely like old. I like things that look old and are, are weathered. Definitely not put off by that. It's interesting that you talk about a timelessness because um, it makes me feel think more about um i suppose i have a intuitive resistance to a school of thought or a trend or a fashion or a, yeah i've always sort of resisted that because i feel you know good art isn't transient uh and it does need to be timeless and if you free yourself of current schools of thought, fashion, conversations, then you're, uh, you have some freedom in that way. But you also risk ignorance. So it's a balance, I think. It's a delicate dance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's yeah. interesting what Rob was saying in about how, you know, in, in 2015, the Paracel Unit show, which was a kind of survey show of yours, and here we are eight years later, and I read that you, something that stayed with you from your uh, MA was a tutor talked to you about the difficulty of sustaining a career. And what what has it been like for you? Because right at the beginning of your career, there was, there was a lot of hype around you, and you were flipped in auctions, and you were bought by the rebels, and you had the Pinot collection, you had a lot of attention on you. And everything I've read at the time is that you were just like, it's the work, it's the work, which is the best way through it. But it's interesting now to have a conversation about sustaining this career and how that's been and what that is, what that feels like. That's such a good question, Russell, um, because it's something I think about all the time. Um, because as artists, you know, we don't have a template. There's no template for how to do this. And since the parasol unit show, yeah, I started thinking a lot more holistically and thinking about the mind and how to optimize the mind and creativity and uh, where you put your energy. And um, like you say, how, how do you sustain this? Like regardless of what is going on, like you say, externally in the market with sales, anything like that. You know, I, I'm a fan of tennis and I was thinking about tennis um, and they say that that is 
you know, one of the most isolated sports because you're on your own at the, the end of this court. But even tennis players have coaches who are advising them about how to play. And as artists, when you paint like I do, there's no one can help you with that, with the actual painting. And so I feel it's crucial, especially now, to really protect and cultivate um, creativity and secure your creative inspiration. Very interested in in uh, flow state, so I've been very interested in cultivating flow state when I'm in the studio. Can you explain what flow state is? So yeah, so you might know it more as being in the zone, and as an actor, you know performers talk about getting themselves out of the way. So um, Stephen Kotler has written a few books on this, on flow state and how to optimize it, but basically. Large, when we go into flow state, large swatches of the prefrontal cortex uh, shut down, which is like our inner critic, like our inner Woody Allen, like our neurotic cells. That goes offline and we are able to access what researchers call the deep now or the elongated present, which means we can't think about the past or future. We are purely in the moment and our concentration, our focus, our creativity is all enhanced and it's you know, the optimal state really for creativity, for all kinds of performance. And this is what I feel now. It's almost irrelevant what we're doing, whether you're an artist, an actor, a business person, an athlete. It's less about what you're doing, but it's more about cultivating the states necessary to go into flow state or to get get the right results. Um, So I've been very interested in yeah, thinking as much about what I'm doing outside the studio as I am inside the studio, just like an athlete, you know, will tinker with every aspect of their day, you know, all to enhance this two minute performance or two hour performance or whatever it is. And yeah, I've been trying to, I thought a lot about securing like a visual hypersensitivity so that I'm always inspired because I believe it is possible, entirely possible to cultivate these states and crucial for an artist because we need, that is one of the things we need to secure, inspiration so that we're always inspired. And that, you know, it's like Picasso or Paul Clay. It's really crucial. And now, like I was saying now with this, um, modern technology and all this shallow focus and distraction, it's really important to build antidotes into your daily routine to have these different periods of flow state. I've also done transcendental meditation recently, which I find has been very helpful for that kind of mindfulness, which helps with the inspiration as well. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Earlier on when you said about how the paintings almost reveal themselves to you, you know, during the process of making them, they, they kind of start to say that they're finished. So um, I was really interested in, in how art has kind of helped reveal yourself to you in, in the sense that I, I sometimes feel that great art can help an individual to kind of like get back to their 
sort of true self or their core or or sort of like strip away all of the layers that 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 we've kind of wrapped ourselves up in you know growing up as a as a teenager as a young adult all these things you kind of put armor on or or, you know you, you start to act in relation to society and there's something about your work that I just feel is so um, and I think it's getting even more so like the Spironi Westwater show you did, which had all the kind of green, you know, really rich tapestry of colors. There was something so almost like pure soul for me, like as a viewer, like looking at that work, it feels really authentic and honest and and kind of joyous as well. Like has your journey being an artist, like that kind of long struggle helped you to sort of be yourself, if you know what I mean, like become more secure as an individual? I definitely think the way of painting, the way of being in life is inextricably linked. And I feel like, yeah, the way I think about painting, the way I think about living, yeah, is is the same um, as in, well, there's lots of things. The conscious mind being limited, um, surrendering to the flow of life, to what is accepting that the conscious mind doesn't always have the answers or know what's best for you in life and in painting. Yeah, I've, I suppose it's a gift, really. But I think when you say struggle, I I, um, I think a lot about challenging belief systems. And, you know, if you think painting is going to be a struggle, then it probably will be. Whereas if you think it's joyful and great fun, then it probably will be. I think the work on the mind and and... You know, I think about Carl Jung because he resonates a lot with me, this idea of the second self and the interior self, which is separate to the physical world that we live in. And that definitely, I definitely identify with that and, and I feel I've cultivated that in the studio. And it's like this um, cultivating this rich inner world or plurality of selves, um, which, you know, it's what you... Uh, I suppose, yeah, it, it's inextricably linked, the painting me in life and painting. It's all the same. But I definitely feel in terms of sustaining, like Russell was saying before, about sustaining the career, it's, it's all about experimenting and challenging and pushing. And, you know, am I awake in all these different areas of my life and self? And then, you know, how is that going to feed into the painting? And Yeah. Do you think about the response to the work and the viewer or like, do you have any intentions to sort of, because I, I, I just feel, I know it sounds really odd, but the more I've started to look at your work, even in the past few days, I feel it opens me up. You know what I mean? Like almost kind of like open heart surgery, that kind of feeling you get when <laughs> art can, can sort of feel like it's you can laid. bear yourself. Yeah. There's something very, mm. I don't know, like it's almost like I'm revealing myself while looking at your works. It's quite an intense thing. And I don't know whether that's something, it's probably not something you, you intend, but I, I do feel like your work has that potential. That's so nice. Thank you. I definitely think about the energy of things now. Like I am... Um, at Christmas time, you know, I was buying presents and wrapping them. And, and previously, I might have, you know, bought something and then wrapped it in a hurry. And then this time, I was really mindful that everything was enjoyable, sourcing the present, wrapping the present, so that when I gave the present to someone, it wasn't like, you know, Merry Christmas, here's a bundle of my hassle and stress. Like, <laughs> you know, it was like, I'm thinking about the energy of what I'm putting out, but obviously, that there needs to be rigor and, and challenge and discernment in the paintings I make. But I suppose it's hard for me to be objective to think about what my paintings might be offering up. But I do think a lot about, in terms of what I was saying before, about I believe that we can all access these states of being which allow us to operate at the height of our powers, to express our unique potential most effectively. And I look at other performers in different fields and what I get from from watching them and what states I think that they are probably in, you know, in flow state um, when they produce these things. And I, I sort of ask the question, what would that mean if that is in painting? What would one feel if that is achieved, that kind of energy? You know, what would it be giving off? I I can't answer that because I'm the maker, I suppose. But it's it's really nice that you 
say that. So with, with this, I mean, I just want to say that the bundle of hassle and stress just gave me a flashback <laughs> to my mom at Christmas as a kid. And I'm just like, I know that when she's listening to this episode, she's going to be nodding, going, yes, yes. But um, <laughs> when you're saying about this, this being completely in the moment, do you finish most of the paintings in one session then? I know you've talked about you take them home and sometimes you do that, but instinctively, are they normally done within one session? No. I, I think I used to like to do them in one session because I felt like the energy was of the moment and um, I wasn't sure I could go back in with a new energy and finish it. But again, that was just a belief system, <laughs> right. a belief system that I needed to get over. So I think the, the potential for making a painting in one sitting is there because of the way I work. And I love the excitement of that, that it could happen in 10 minutes or it could you know, it could take a day or a week or months or years. So every sitting is an attempt at painting, if you like, but invariably they're sitting upon sitting, attempt upon attempt, if you know what I mean. Mm. I love this belief system that you've sort of cracked the code for. <laughs> oh, you... I don't, I, I, I've not cracked the code. I mean, I think it's a practice. It, it's a practice, but yeah, I think, you know, we have to challenge belief systems. But, you know, I, I read a lot, and there's a lot of books, people in personal growth will talk about challenging belief systems because basically we get to define our reality. There's this thing about great people bending reality to their whim. Like Steve Jobs, for example, had a sort of reality distortion where he believed that the rules didn't apply to him and he could bend reality. And I think this, I'm definitely interested in that because we create our own reality and it comes back to energy again and what vibration we're operating at and what we attract into our lives. And I'm interested in that. Rob mentioned about how do you consider an audience, uh, how they feel about your work and how he's personally been affected by it recently. But I've always felt like the titles for you are very important and very funny at times and humorous and kind of then there's they're nothing at points and then they're, they're everything. I've always felt like they're an aid that you're giving to the works for an audience to see what you're seeing in the work or you want them to see what you're suddenly seeing. They used to be. They definitely used to be that. But I think now it's more about me, like an aid to remember for me. Um, like this show I have coming up <laughs> in Australia, the show is called More Me, and I, I've called the paintings More Me, um, because this um, this idea that with transcendental meditation, it promotes um, self-actualization, which is more um, expressing your unique potential, if you like. And I had a moment in the painting where I felt like uh, my preoccupations with the paint and the particularities of the paint as a medium were, were coming through with real clarity. And I felt this moment of possible self-actualization. And, you know, sometimes when you have these little moments and then you integrate it or you it becomes the new normal or you kind of think, oh, did I? Did I feel that? Or was it, you know, how real was it? But it definitely felt like a thing. And so for me, I've, I called the paintings more me. And I was sort of thinking, how many shall I call, call more me? <laughs> how important is this for me to remember that this was important feeling this way? So I think I've called about the last 10 paintings more me. So I think that's probably enough now. Don't know. We'll see. This is open so, at Station Gallery in Melbourne. <laughs> this is about to yes. open there. What, and you're yeah. not, are you going to go out there and see this or has it just gone off? No. So what's that no, like knowing that there's a, an exhibition curated and showing that you're never going to see in the flesh? Oh, that is a good question. Yeah, because I'm not sure if I've ever not seen a show that I've done. They, did, they asked me, I think, we could do a live, a live Zoom to curate them together. But there's only seven of them and they're quite cohesive. So... I think it will be quite easy to hang them, if you know what I mean. I think they all will work quite well together. Yeah, I suppose it is a little sad that I won't get to see them. Hong, hey-ho. Hey-ho. <laughs> Can I just mention some of the titles that have been lovely for me uh, that have stayed out? I think uh, Lady Bear with a Back Full of Hair. 
that's hilarious. I've forgotten all about them. Uh, Still Life with Nothing. Mickey Mouse Moran. That's a favourite of mine. Yeah. I love that one. <laughs> These titles are that... hilarious and brilliant. Mickey Mouse Moran. Mickey Mouse Moran. Well, my son's called Mickey. I do have a bit of a Disney thing. Yeah, comes through in the paintings. Has, has being a mother affected, you know, are you saying your, your kids have certain hours now? And I think when we're trying to get the episode today, there's only a certain window of opportunity with you to do this. Has being a mother affected your time in the studio and your ability to make work? And when you're in the studio, the kind of, obviously, that you have a lot of focus in, in that studio time. But has it given the practice something completely new? Massively. <laughs> You know, like in that film, As Good As It Gets, when Jack Nicholson says to, um, what's her name, Helen Hunt, you make yeah. me want to be a better, better man. Better man, yeah. That's the effect that the kids have on me. You know, they make me, <laughs> make me want to be a better man, make me want to be a better person. And when they were born and then I got divorced and uh, I'm a single parent, I thought a lot about where I put my energy and where to drop the ball. I think ever since then, it's been this, this is why I've started to think more holistically and trying to optimize creativity and how I spend my time. And because it's such a thing to try and be the best for your kids and then try and keep making the best painting that you can, that doesn't happen by accident. And this comes back to the template, you know, what template am I going to create for myself? Yeah, so no, it's been a massive thing, I would say. Mm. If we um, if we look back to your childhood, so you grew up in Manchester, and I believe both your parents were art teachers. Yeah. So what was what was Manchester like as a kind of place to grow up and creatively? Like, I, I heard that you had like you know you even saw art hanging at home, perhaps, or or your parents' friends' homes, or, or things like that. Like, can you speak a bit about that whole time? Not not original art in people's homes, I wouldn't say, but my mum and dad had a lot of David Hockney prints and books oh, in the wow. living room. Yeah, so a lot of that, I remember my mum and dad had like a big pop art life-size Superman kind of going down the stairs, you know, stuff wow. on the wall. So, yeah, there was lots of kind of fun, interesting art around the house. And then my grandparents were very different because the you know, obviously a different generation. Uh, one set of grandparents were Irish immigrants. The other may have been Irish, but denied it. Um, but they, a lot of religious kind of iconography and, and things and those homes. But Manchester was, was great, a great place to grow up because, you know, we had Manchester. We had that time with the music, which was a real moment. Um you know, my brother was a musician and he had some success with his band. And so I often think about that time and think, you know, it made you see. I think at that time it was very Manchester centric, you know, um, which is easy to get with about London, I think. It's become quite London centric. But then I was Manchester centric and, and I think. Yeah, it sort of can't be underestimated what effect that has when you see that those things are possible. You know, when all these bands in Manchester are having great success and doing so well, and, and then, yeah. Trying to think, what else did you ask me about Manchester? It was just kind of about growing up there and the fact, the fact your parents were art teachers. I found that that's obviously quite a unique experience to have two very art-loving parents in a way. Yeah, I think it is. But you know when sometimes you're in it and because they were both art teachers, you sort of don't realise <laughs> how that's affecting you. But I did, after my son was born, I had a sort of, I wanted to try different things. I was going to learn Italian and I, I did a week's acting course to see what that was like. And I remember sort of thinking about it, thinking, wow, you know, if both of my parents had been actors, how would I have thought differently? As in both my parents were art teachers. And so I was doing this art from an early age, but it's like a, an external, a detached thing. Whereas acting to me felt about the physicality, you know, being in, in this body and use, using it. And I thought, 
Yeah. How would I be aware, more aware of my physicality or how would that have changed? Yeah, I think it obviously shaped me because I think there's definitely a way that they thought and, and definitely aesthetics mm. over function. Definitely mm. a big mm. thing in our family. <laughs> 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 yeah, always aesthetics over function. So you, what, you'd have like a nice looking chair, but it'd be incredibly uncomfortable, but it'd look good. Yeah, definitely like prioritizing that to a fault, perhaps. Even like now that. I'd need to be mindful of <laughs> I think my boyfriend would nod along to that and be like, that's what I yeah. It looks good. He it's really like you can't Steve. sit Poor on it. I'd be like, yeah, it looks Poor good. Just leave Steve. it. Just leave it. The thing is, your, your dogs always make, yeah. make things like, yeah. they sort of take it over anyway. Yeah. And also I read that you were really into illustration early on and Kit Williams was a kind of formative Oh yeah, Kit Williams. Yeah, so yeah, amongst the David Hockney books and prints were lots of, yeah, Kit Williams books and Masquerade. Yeah, this kind of rich, rich detail and, and imagery. Yeah, I've not thought about him for a while. But yeah, I did. It's true. I studied illustration. And then, yeah, halfway through my degree course, I realized that I wanted to paint. And they told me that I failed a course and not to do it. But I did it. And, you know, well it doesn't matter now, does it? But <laughs> did, you, did you always have that kind of conviction of, and like self kind of self-possession or something because I feel like there's a lot of things in your story where it it seems like you do have a inner confidence or strength or something for protecting what it is you want to do like you make a decision and you're like actually this is I like illustration but painting is I'm a painter and you make that decision even though everyone around you is like you're gonna fail the course maybe you should reconsider but where does that come from Yeah, I thought about that sometimes because, you know, it was, I felt like it was me and my dad from an early age, like my dad taught me to draw and he was very passionate, he'd get very excited. And I wonder whether I had that confidence because it felt like we were a bit of a team, if you like. And it's funny even saying it now, because going back to what I was saying before about being so autonomous and isolating, if you like, it's only ever been me. But yeah, when I think back to that time, it did feel like, a team thing which is nice so I don't know if the confidence came from that relationship or whether it was innate but I've definitely always had a strong sense yeah of 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 uh, what I felt to be right and a refuse nick about rules you know whereas in other areas of my life I would definitely defer to others for advice or follow the rules especially where health and safety <laughs> Uh, would be concerned but I did not like rules in art at all I did not like anyone trying to impose them still don't don't like it don't like agendas schools of thought no before we get onto our final questions I want to just talk about your palette and how it's changed uh, over the years to begin with when, when we were first seeing your works they were very it was very vibrant and then it's sort of taken on a muted grungy palette and now there is an oscillation between the bright a lot of reds and oranges and then we have this muted uh, palette again can you talk about your color choices and and what that instinct is and how that has changed i think i correlate now the palette with my well-being I'm mindful of an intentional of, of, like I was saying, the energy I put out, the, the colors I might want to use. But I'm, I also follow um, whatever I feel an affinity to or tune into in terms of color I will go with. But um, I feel like the palette has lightened more recently. Like I was looking at a batch of salvage paintings that I collected just the other day in the studio and I looked at them together. And I immediately thought, all this needs to be lifted. The palette needs to be lifted a good few notches, which I'm pleased about because I think it indicates um, a happiness, a a good state of being. Well, that's brilliant to hear, Katie. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you. Yes, (laughs) I'm glad I'm mentally well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Along, alongside um the importance of, of color in your work how important is collage and do you do you still sort of make collages so i i sometimes use my bum in my painting now i make bum prints do you know that no Did you no know i that? didn't know that oh, your okay. bum. yes i sit on them yeah wow um, back in 2020 i started doing that 
<laughs> on all of all of them, or is it always a surprise? Do we, do we never do we a lot of them? Do we know as an audience if if your bums touch the paint or not, or is it something just for you? To you know? know, I I did think of doing a little signature like bum logo, so that I, I need to remember for me to know which ones I bum printed and which I hadn't. Like make a little stamp of a of a bum. Yeah, I love that, that so much. I haven't... <laughs> so it's definitely more me. I should more, do. More you. More it is me. more. It's yeah. a lot more of you. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that is something I didn't know. Yeah, I read about I collage, know. but I hadn't I didn't read know about it. Oh, okay, present. yeah. 2020, Derriere. the bomb made its appearance. Yeah. How did that? So, so how did that come about? What led to that? Um, Love this. Well, when I moved to this bigger studio, and I was thinking about the intentional brush stroke, and then I was thinking about how I could make a bigger, bigger mark, but without using the intentional brush stroke. And then I was looking back at Eve's Klein body painting, mm. and and then I just sat in it, yeah, in the studio without like I wear incontinence pants now, but I sat in it without any off. <laughs> So paint got in some, yeah, some mm-hmm. places, which mm-hmm. is not not great. I guess your studio should be quite private at this point, right? <laughs> you sat in consonants <laughs> pants sitting on all the paintings. This isn't really like your yes. studio visits. This doesn't happen when you have an audience there, I take it. No, I put the incontinence pants away when anyone comes to visit. <laughs> I love this. I did realise I'm putting them through as my expenses for my accountant with no explanation. And he's quite, he's not said anything, but I was thinking, you must be wondering why I'm sending these receipts for incontinence pants through to him. But um, so going back to the question about collage, I started, when I was using the bomb, the prints, the bomb print would be round, but then I started using masking tape so that then I could bomb print different shapes. And then sometimes the masking tape would get covered with paint. And so in that way, it would end up being collage so as part of the painting. So that is the only collage that I've sort of incorporated almost by accident, really, recently. Yeah. And I'm into the kind of the bum and, bum and roll. So sitting, it, sitting in it and then rolling it. Around so your bum. Cameras up and rolling. I'm not rolling around my bum. I'm sitting in it and then, and then lifting it and so it rolls and drips. And that and that that approach to mark making is literally part of a response to trying to push to a new place, like so that the the mark making itself looks different. Well, I like the mark that the bomb creates, but also I like the fact that it's accident and chance. You know, you can't orchestrate that. You don't know. I mean, you know kind of what mark it's going to make, but you don't know exactly. So I like the, the surprise element of that, but also the energy, the fresh kind of energy of that amongst the brush strokes. It's, a, it's like this dedication to, to your art and how that intense, you know, the days and days, the weeks and weeks, the years and years of dedicating yourself to one thing like painting. Like, it's so wonderful that you can explore different ways of mark making. It's just, I don't know, I just find that super cool, that exploration and that experimentation and spontaneity. Yeah, I I mean, I've always been a fan of accident and chance. Yeah, and I like that, that element and then preserving, you know, which it, then the it's the skill is in preserving, you know, which part of the accident and trying to keep the energy of the accident across the whole of the painting. But yeah, I feel like it's just another tool in the toolkit. You know, it's just another way. Cool. I love that. I love that. Well, we're going to get into our final questions now, Katie. Uh, I know that you've got mm. a car on a, a parking meter, so we'd be quick. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. in London, that's a serious yes, thing. Yes, exactly. That's a serious <laughs> yeah. crime. That's a crime, Katie. Um, so <laughs> if you could do an art heist and you could have any work of art in the world uh, for yourself, mm. what would that be and why? Helen Frank and Tyler, I think. Oh, nice. Mm, a big, big that'd one. That would be lovely. Oh, a big one. Yeah, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? <sighs> And then I would bathe in the collar. Lovely collar. Why is she your why is she your number one? Is it the, the gesturely energy that she's able to bring into every work? I think it's just the expanse of collar. I love how it soaks into the canvas. Like she uses the unprimed canvas, I think, doesn't she? I just love I love the simplicity and the collar and the way it bleeds into the canvas. They're just they're just lovely. Well, I guess and that leads on to our next question about colour then. Yeah, our next question is, uh, what is your favourite colour and why? 
think in the studio, my favorite color would be Titan Buff, which is like my, de- my default setting. I've never heard of Titan, that one. What Titan is that color? Buff. I don't paint, you see. Titan, Titan Buff. Buff. Yeah, it's, it forms the base of a lot of my paintings. It's like a wow. sort of retro, creamy, off-white color. Okay. So that is the one I use the most, I would say, which is kind of a non-color, isn't it? A neutral. And then in life, I would say Racing Green is my nice. favorite. That's, racing Green? That's where you've just painted your house, yeah. Racing Green. I've just painted my entrance hall green. I'm wearing racing green. My car's racing green. Yeah, love it. Yeah. Who is your paint company of choice? Who do you use? Golden. Where are they from? I think they're California, but they, I use acrylic paint. So, and I like the fluid acrylic paint. Very nice. Do you use acrylic, Russell? I wear acrylic sometimes you, no. on my fingers, but no, I don't. I don't paint. No. <laughs> No. Okay. No. You have painted occasionally, Russ. Yeah, I've I mean, I, yeah. TV I mean, yeah, 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 but I wouldn't. I, he does it for like I don't fun. Have a, and actually, I thought, he, yeah, he's, I, I think he's it. into like he, he's into drawing because if we sign our book, he always does little cartoons. And I think I Russell, I, I don't have anything like that. The only thing I've done is like hearts and crosses, like like Al- Kylie Minogue. Minogue. Yeah, yeah. Literally, when I was about eight years old, I used to do my own signature copying Kylie's with a heart and neck. You still do, that's the only, and you that's still literally do, still do. And that is the last time I made art. Kate, I literally stopped. Yeah, I couldn't tell you like my. I couldn't tell you my medium of choice. Yeah. That's Katie. That's why we love art so much because we don't really make it ourselves you know what else can i quickly just ask how does sound influence you because i've read you talk about sound before and i know you've even been interested in like sound baths and almost like not not therapy as such but kind of like you know how sound can impact you as a as a person but does sound influence your your work at all do you listen to music in the studio is there yeah, I do. I'm curious to how do you know about sound baths? I mean, I have been to sound baths, but I yeah. have read a lot about Katie Moran. So somewhere along the way, oh, you wow. have you, you've briefly mentioned it, and I actually know someone in Margate who does sound baths as a thing. And I went to one recently. Um, we did it in the gallery actually at Carl Friedman Gallery one evening, and it was really impactful and an amazing thing like to have resonance and vibrations and and i'm just interested because yeah. i know you're interested in all kinds of things like feng shui and all of these different yeah. um, histories i did um i did sound therapy quite a while ago back in 2000 yeah maybe it was 2015 and so i listened to mozart and gregorian chant uh for mm-hmm. two hours a day for two weeks at different frequencies and uh, basically i did it to help process trauma but it ended mm-hmm. up having an effect on my painting it kind of changed the brush stroke um, and the palette. Everything emptied out. And I did a show in New York that were all white paintings. But basically, the woman who took the sound therapy course, she was an ex-opera singer. And she advised that I listen to Mozart on analog when I painted. So for five years, I listened to Mozart, the same record over and over again on a record player. Wow. <laughs> um, and I couldn't even tell you which record it was. <laughs> Because it wasn't really about, you know, it was just, and again, it was like a belief system. I felt like this was helping me paint. But then I read about the heart intelligence um, and the heart is made up of about 40,000 neurons, which play a central role in shaping emotion, perception and decision making. A bit like the gut, you know, is the second brain. And I was reading about how uplifting music um can help sort of fire up the heart intelligence. So then I went back to listening to what I like because this opera t- uh, teacher had said that pop music was the equivalent of junk food. So I'd stopped listening to that. Um, yeah. But now I've started again. I listen to whatever I like and I love it. You just binge <laughs> out on that pop music. Mm. <laughs> I, yeah, it's the McDonald's I, of sound. We love it. What, what is the um, what's the best advice you've ever received, Katie? When it comes to your art, what's the best advice you've ever received? I don't think it was advice, but I think it was what you were saying. The question that was posed, you know, how do you sustain your career? How do you sustain the excitement and passion for your career? But also just. Someone once said to me something along the lines of someone's got to be an artist, why not you? And I think when you're quite when you're young, that's quite a good one. Just to remember someone's gotta be one. Why not you? <laughs> um, yes, I love that. I love that for anything. That's great. 
<laughs> well, exactly. Well, this has been heaven. You're not going to get a parking ticket. I think we're going to get out of here in time. I'm not. We're on the right side of the law. 12 minutes on the right side of the law. What's next for you, Katie? You've got a show, uh, as we discussed, opening up a in station Melbourne. gallery in Melbourne titled yes. More Me with your bum all over it. Yeah. What is the next uh, yeah. exhibition coming up for you? Doing a limited edition bum print for Tate, St. Ives. Are you really? Yes, so that will be, yeah, for their anniversary. And then, yeah, just... I think Arthur Breeze, New York. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Um, for everyone listening, go to Instagram and see images of uh, everything we discussed in today's episode. Katie, you're on Instagram as well. And is it just at Katie yes. Moran? Katie Moran123. At Katie Moran123. And we're at Talk Art. And thank you for today's chat. It's been so wonderful to get to know you better. It's really nice because I've always really respected your focus and the really sort of direct way you will talk about making paintings and how important it is to you. But it is also really joyous to hear your kind of humour and lighter side alongside the kind of, um, I don't know, pursuit of freeing up that energy to make work and get into the zone. I mean, I just find that so inspiring. It's a really great lesson for all of us. So thank you, Katie Moran. We'll be back very soon. Thanks for listening. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having Bye. me. Thanks, Katie. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.